Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Charlie Ardott with Look East and the Center for Food Integrity, dedicated my career to keeping food trustworthy. And I'm Susan Schwally, president of the food and beverage practice at the MPD Group, dedicated my career to understanding what, when, where, why, and how Americans eat and drink what they do. And I'm Kevin Ryan, founder of Malachite Strategy and Research, and I have developed innovation and strategy for dozens of CPG and retailers from General Mills to Amazon. And hey, we are the three squares dishing on the food industry. We talk to industry movers and shakers who are shaping the food industry and tackle today's top food topics as well. We'll have Kieran Fillard as our special guest this week. But first, some tasty conversation. Here's what's on the menu. As the food industry goes digital, you're starting to break away from the categorization of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to see more of that type of thing mm-hmm. as... Uh, you know, we blend cultures, we bend ethnic, you know, cuisines, uh, you're going to have to break those categorizations. Just the breaking of categories in general is a, you know, snack a meal, is a frozen, is it fresh or whatever. Well, when you're ordering on Amazon, it doesn't matter. You type in chocolate and is chocolate cereal, is it chocolate drink? I think that that's going to be the future in many ways is this breaking of categories. You know, it's interesting, though, because you still have, when you type in whatever you're looking for on Amazon, it still comes up with a department list. Yeah. Right? In which department <laughs> do you want to look for this? Yeah. I don't care. Exactly. Well, that's going to be relevant to those of us who grew up total brick and mortar, right? It's the same. Oh, look, here's another electric car uh, comment from me. When I had my Nissan Leaf, they still showed a gas pump for the battery meter. Oh, so there was like a little little icon? Yeah, gas pump icon, even though it was a fully electric car. Take my son, who's only grown up with electric cars, who's 10 years old. It's going to mean nothing. It's not going to be relevant. That reminds me of, if you're familiar in design, there's something called skeuomorphia. And skeuomorphia is when the older thing is used to represent something new. So for example, mm-hmm. in electric cars, some of them still have grills in the front, which aren't necessary mm-hmm. to cool down an engine. Right. Or another a good example is at the top of a file, like a Microsoft Word, there's a little picture of a floppy disk, yeah. which if you talk to anyone mm-hmm. really young, they're like, what the heck is that? I don't know what that is. That means save. But to us mm-hmm. who grew up with it, so that skeuomorphic design is interesting. Is it's a holdover from past design, and I think that's really interesting about how that's going to that is interesting happen in the food industry too. That's why Charlie <laughs> has an icon of a typewriter on his keyboard, so he knows what to do with it. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we will close on the menu for this week. Kevin, I am so excited to hear from Kieran. I mean, he is such an amazing entrepreneur and the different things he's been involved in. This is going to be a great guest. Kevin said a little background um, about the food building. I'll be very curious to hear more about that and its commercial viability. It's quite a sight to see, to see all the, the, the meats being created, the breads being created from scratch, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just all in one place. There's, there's, there's it's a lot of fun to see. Yeah, Kieran's done a great job. Our table discussion is next. At General Mills, we know it's not just what we make, but how we make it that matters. We take care in selecting the ingredients behind our beloved brands, such as Cheerios, Nature Valley, Old El Paso, 
Haagen-Dazs, and Annie's. And we go further by working every day to alleviate hunger, slow climate change, and strengthen communities. Today, that's what it means to make food the world loves. Learn more at GeneralMills.com. All right. Well, Charlie and Susan, I'm extremely excited to introduce uh, Kieran Fillard to you guys. I've known Kieran, had the had the pleasure of knowing Kieran for many years. And besides being basically one of the most curious, passionate, and driven people I've ever known, he's a definition of the spirit of entrepreneurship. After coming to the U.S. more than 20 years ago, Kieran opened five Irish pubs in Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Then he launched two Irish whiskey companies, Two Gingers Irish Whiskey, which he sold to Beam Suntory and most recently, Red Locks Irish Whiskey. Then he renovated and abandoned building in Northeast Minnesota called the Food Building. And then since 2014, Kieran has been running the Food Building, which basically the way that I think about it, and I'm sure Kieran can give us a little bit more detail about this, is a collection of local artisan productions, cheese, bread, meat, and now fermentation. And, you know, if that wasn't enough, Kieran is one of the most generous people I know. He's always willing to give advice and his thoughts to young entrepreneurs and business leaders, and he's here to do the same thing for us today. So with that, I'd like to welcome Kieran to Three Squares. Thanks, Kieran. Well, thank you very much, Kevin, and nice to meet uh, all the rest of the team that's on the uh, the cast. I'd like to start off, I mean, you've been working to push the food building further and further, even during the pandemic. And I'm just curious of your thoughts. If you had to kind of put in a nutshell, what what are the learnings and lessons that you've gotten uh, from the pandemic? Well, it's been a very interesting uh, period of time, as it has for everybody that lives on this planet, of course. Our culture as a whole, you know, when you look at it, has become very removed from food production. Uh, so we believe that it's important that people understand and have the opportunity to appreciate where their food comes from. Uh, and we see that as one of our primary jobs, one of our primary uh, goals here at Food Building. You know, some of the things that we've seen change, of course, have been people's more attention to their core beliefs and their openness to it. It seems like people have slowed down. And so they're more open to time-consuming activities like curating ingredients to cook themselves at home. And so while there may still be people that always had an interest in food, I think it's just gone a little bit deeper uh, is what we've kind of experienced here over the last, uh, you know, couple of years now, for God's sake, yeah. Uh, So I'd say it it has impacted consumers' view of the value of food, and so they're looking to support people that are growing and raising food in sustainable and humane ways. But I think they've taken a bit more deeper, maybe, curiosity uh, about what that actually means and what it means to them specifically as well. I know that you've been experimenting a lot. I mean, as, as you and I have chatted offline, I know there's some experiments that you've done. Are there things that you've done in that realm that have worked and maybe others that haven't? Well, now our food production here, so we've got the creamery, which is siloed, of course. Um, Red Table Meats, uh, a salumi business, uh, is siloed. Uh, And then Bakersfield Flour and Bread, uh, which is siloed as well. But they're all right beside each other. We have continued to operate nonstop. 
uh, throughout the pandemic because we're distributing those products to uh, locally to co-ops uh, and then also to independent specialty food uh, stores and also to some supermarkets. But then we're also supplying Red Table Meats and Alamar Cheese through a distribution network across the U.S., specialty food distributors. So we've stayed in production all of this time. What I like to refer to as the kitchen, which is really the factory shop uh, and the factory cafe, that has changed about three times during the pandemic, from closing down to converting to a market to going back to a market slash cafe. Uh, the customer base that normally we would have had would be both centered around where we're situated in Northeast Minneapolis, and then it would be people, like-minded people, who value what we're actually doing. That has changed as well, and I would say it has become much more about what we hear from, from, these, uh, from our consumer base and just say, okay, we're comfortable with this, we're not comfortable with that, we'll try this, we'll try that, we're small enough that we can turn on a dime, basically. So, Karen, it's kind of interesting as you, as you talk about that. A couple of questions come to mind. Why did you decide uh, creamery, butcher shop, and, and, and bakery? That's one of them. And then how do you see this impacting the broader food conversation? I mean, what you've done there is really, really interesting. But as you talked about the specific kind of consumer you're attracting, tell us a little bit about that consumer and how you see this impacting the broader food system. Well, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a big question, uh, and I think it's a question that we're still trying to figure out uh, the answers to it. Um, I believe in starting with the, the, the products that we started with, we're producing products that are timeless. People have been stone milling grain, they have been churning milk, and they've been dry curing meats and fermenting beverages for thousands of years. And so we don't see ourselves as doing anything revolutionary. We see ourselves going back to uh, what had been done prior to industrialization. Craft is something that sits on top of all of it, because obviously you have to have people that have an expertise to actually produce these products like they were produced prior to industrialization and prior to people talking about organic or sustainable, etc. And so... Um, it's, it's trying to put a, shine a light on that uh, and the values in it. Now, clearly, uh, the difference is the products cost more today. Uh, and the biggest challenge, I would say, that we face is how do you democratize the products that we're producing? And it is it's a very, very difficult uh, situation we're in because you guys know as well, and if not better than I do, that food is so cheap in this country. And of course, <laughs> cheap is one thing. I mean, what, what about the uh, nutritional value or the flavor in, in those particular foods? And so we pay our farmers two to three times the commodity price uh, for their products. Obviously, we're all hearing about uh, price increases and inflation, etc. So our milk prices have not gone up, our hog prices have not gone up, our grain prices have not gone up. But we started out with they were two to three times the commodity price. And so um, that's, that's where we sit today, I would say. So Kieran, help me understand your point of view here. Do you consider yourself part of the hyperlocal movement? Because you're also doing at least some broader distribution here. Tell me about that. Susan, when you talk about um, hyperlocal, uh, what we're really talking about is hyperlocal in terms of the ingredients 
that we uh, source locally here. And then we add the craft to those, uh, to those ingredients. And some of those finished products, added value products, we are distributing nationally. But we're distributing products nationally because we have these incredible raw materials, ingredients here in Minnesota. So it isn't like we think or we believe that everybody should just eat locally, produce locally, eat locally. Uh, I think it's right. What makes sense in your particular um, uh, location or area? I think a huge percentage of the people that we have engaged with so far, they've identified things about their core beliefs and values that they do want to hold on to, which is preparing a meal at home, having more downtime in terms of family, uh, and that uh, while we, people may have talked about that for many, many years, they have gotten the opportunity uh, to uh, experience it, and not just experience it once or twice, experience it over a period of time, which I think is, is key in terms of uh, habit development. Kieran, I wanted to ask a question about red locks and about how does that fit with your philosophy? So the introduction of a new whiskey to the to the, to the spectrum of whiskeys and and coming at it again after two gingers. Tell me about that. Tell me about the how that fits into your philosophy and the philosophy of everything that you do. Uh, well, there's a, a couple of um, uh, positions on that question, Kevin. Uh, the first one is that. Uh, everything that I've done over, and I'll, I'll be here 35 years come April 16th, uh, which, by the way, was uh, Good Friday, 1987. Why, why I can remember that so clearly was the next day was Good Friday, and I thought, my God, this is a heathen country. Everybody's running around, and they're going in and out of bars and restaurants and etc. Whereas up until a few years ago, Good Friday was the only day of the year in Ireland that the pubs were not allowed to open. Now, of course, that did not mean that you couldn't get into one, but uh, they were legally. <laughs> and so I made money, uh, and then I uh, opened pubs. Then I made money by selling the pubs about 20 years later, and I used that to launch two gingers. Then I sold two gingers, and I made money on that to open food building. Food building will not <laughs> afford me to buy anything else. We are hoping uh, the goal is I think we will have made a small profit in Bakersfield flour and bread uh, last year for the first time since we started uh, six years ago. Red Table, we're going to break even after seven years and Alamar break even also. So this last year was a breakout year because we, we broke even and made, made a small profit. So Redlocks Irish whiskey, there's a lot more margin and profit in booze than there is in uh, in, uh, in artisan food. Uh, it should be the other way around. And I actually said to somebody, I said, my God, I said, this is outrageous. I said, uh, uh, people should be willing to pay more uh, for their food than for their booze. You can't. You can't live without food. You can live without booze. And he said, well, I'm not so sure about that, he said. <laughs> also fits in very well in another capacity in the fact that my partner in the business, Noel Sweeney, who's Ireland's premier uh, distiller, he's been in it for almost 30 years and a brilliant uh, individual. He's also chairman of the technical file for all Irish whiskey. And 
the work that they do on the sourcing uh, for a start uh, and the relationships with the farmers, uh, whether it's the barley farmers, uh, etc., uh, in Ireland is very much in line with what we're doing here. So for argument's sake, and nothing, there's no bad Irish whiskey is what I like to say, because the bar, uh, the line uh, is set. It's a very important part of the Irish economy today. And so it's a very important piece of not alone exports, but also of tourism into Ireland. They're distilled three times, aged three years. We distilled three times, but we aged it four years minimum up to six. And we innovated with it, but we've managed to do it and keep it line priced with the competitors in that area. So we've premiumized what I would call a um, uh, your your go to your broad market. It's uh, not a 15 year aged, et cetera. If we could do something similar with Red Table and with Alamar and with Bakersfield Flour and Bread and Tres Leche uh, Ferments, I think that would be a huge win. So what are the lessons that we're learning from that and how could they be potentially uh, introduced to the food side to help with that democratization? Okay, I love that. I love the idea of that both of them have different, you can learn from one you know, and apply it to the other. I think that's good. Yeah, Karen, I was just I was just curious. You know, you said it took seven years for this to be profitable. So obviously this is not uh, a business decision. There's something else that's driving you to be involved. What is that and why? Well, uh, I probably am a little bit a mix of, of the artist and the business person. I probably think of myself a bit more of a very frustrated artist that just couldn't put a paintbrush on a canvas or create music, etc. Uh, but I love the ideas of, of just ideas in general and how do you bring them to life, but particularly if they're very core to kind of who I am myself. And I was able to identify that probably, probably early on. I grew up in a farm community in, uh, in the west of Ireland um, I got to work in Saudi Arabia in 1977, 78, 79 with two farmer brothers, Alistair and Paddy McGuckey, and from Northern Ireland. And they established what is now probably one of the most successful indigenous brands in the Persian Gulf. And it was an amazing to be exposed to that in my very early 20s. And so I look back on that and there was some inspiration there. And so I think it's about like what really excites you on a day to day basis. And I love the idea of craft. I love the idea of people who are super passionate about what they do. And all of these people, honestly, they could be probably making two, three times their money out there in the corporate world, if we wanted to call it that, because of their expertise that have been developed through uh, through training and uh, or work experience. But no, they also do it uh, for other reasons as well. And so, yeah, I think that that's a long-winded answer to your question. Kieran, you're obviously very passionate about your craft. And kudos to you for finding others who share your passion and vision for food building. I can't help but wonder, how do you grow? Is it possible to scale any of this? And if you wanted to scale, what do you think is holding you back? Well, our facilities here... um we're debt-free. We own all the equipment, own the building. That helps. So that's where the money went. <laughs> and so the facilities here, they do have a capacity constraint at some point. Uh, beyond that, how do you grow beyond it? I don't really look towards that. That is not a goal. I think a food building 
and everything that we have here could be a beacon out there. I kind of communicate it to people. When I give them the short kind of answer to this, what are we? I said, we're doing things that are timeless. Then you've got the craft on top of that. I said, big egg and big uh, food are the, like the North Pole, and we're the South Pole. And can you create a tension between the two whereby 90% of the world's population that hovers around the equator could benefit from that? That to us would be a big win, so it would. If uh, people got inspired in Kansas City and L.A. and in uh, Detroit or wherever it was to say, you know what, there should be stone milling in every town. That's a great analogy. There's so much we can learn from each other as a whole. What do you think it would take to get these two poles closer together? Well, I think big food and big ag, they're obviously, Kevin can speak to this an awful lot better than I can. Uh, but, you know, they, they already do that to some degree. They're looking at trends and they're looking at things beyond anything that we can ever do. So what can we do? Can we inspire some people uh, like ourselves, like-minded people in other cities to say, you know, maybe this can be done and then just, you know, so it's, we're not going to, we can't feed the world so we can't, uh, you know, but we can feed the people that we can feed <laughs> that are supporters of ours, that are our base. Uh, but then beyond that, I think it's more about the ripple effect and, uh, and where does that lead us? So Kieran, to, to that point, what, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs who want to move in that direction? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Well, I would say the first thing to do would be to surround yourself with people, like-minded people. Now, of course, you could say that about any endeavor in life, uh, but to surround yourself with people like that and to, and to position yourself in the marketplace uh, in terms of partnerships with people like the relationships we have with the co-op market here in the Twin Cities. Uh, and even then, it's, it's, it's still quite difficult, uh, but... I would have to say it'll have to start with a very core desire to make a difference uh, in that world, That to, to just do it and look on it as a commercial endeavor. I don't think you can really get yourself, uh, you never get yourself to start. It's a little bit like the artist. The artist has to do it. They can't not do what are brought to do. <laughs> and so I think it's a little bit of that, that you almost have to do it, that you're just not going to be satisfied if you don't act on those ideas. I think that'd be a place to start. All right. I, I want to be conscious of uh, your time, Kieran, and, and to thank you. And uh, this has been great. Always learn something. Uh, thank you very much for your, uh, you know taking the time to tell us your journey and, and what you're thinking right now. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. And uh, yes, if you ever make it here to, uh, to the great state of Minnesota, look us up. We'll do it. Kieran, thank you. You know, everybody in that realm, it's so interesting because they are so cut from the same cloth in terms of, you know, their passion and their independence and their skill. And it, it's just, it's it's so interesting to me the 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 personality. Yeah, I, well, to me, what's the most fascinating is his his drive to be artistic and to be um, kind of uh, you know t- to help others before profit. You know what I mean? Like this idea of I want to be the counterpoint or the counterweight to big food, and that's what drives me. Versus, like he said at the end there, uh, versus uh, you know just profit. Right. But I, th- I th- think that's a great point, Kevin, because it can't be just profit, but it can't be without profit. 
right? Because it's not sustainable. But the goal isn't to maximize profit. The goal is to have his passion and vision come to life and be profitable enough to make it sustainable. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's so interesting because there's uh, Tanya Newski is like second or third generation running new skis up in Wittenberg, Wisconsin, which does smoke my favorite bacon, new skis, applewood smoked bacon. And they still do everything in smokers with applewood 24 hours. They roll the rack in, you know, they can't go retail because they still are committed to that craft. But there's an organization that I believe has kept commitment to craft as well as profitability. Well, but, you know, Kevin, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about, that you got to pick one end or the other, right? You said, you know, don't get stuck in the middle. But is it middle, Charlie? Because, like, or or is the continuum like a, well, I'll take my new ski example of pretty sizable, not going to be national distribution through retail, um, but a really good product that can reach a lot of people. Maybe you just can't get the scale. Yeah, but it's still artisanal. Maybe it's artisanal at scale, but it is not scale. Right. Right. No, it's not scale. I, I think the idea of uh, is more you know, having a very sharp point of view uh, is probably what I th- I think is is really powerful. I mean, when you talk to Kieran, I think I always get great enjoyment out of him. Is he has a very sharp point of view on things, mm-hmm. and he um, not that it doesn't mean he doesn't change his mind when faced with new information. He does that, but the way he views the world you know, whether or not it's that artistic side or whatever it is, really does uh, craft the way in which he does business. And I think that's the differentiating point. And I think that's what doesn't get him stuck in the middle. How'd you guys meet? Um, That is a good question. How did we meet? Drinking? No, it wasn't drinking. You know what? I really don't remember how. I don't remember how. It's been years. So it was drinking. Yes, okay, it was drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to imagine that in the Twin Cities... He is an institution because there's Kieran's Irish Pub, there's the Cooper, there's there's he has all these uh, uh, establishments that still have his name on them, even though he doesn't own them. Yeah, and uh, people that are in food in in any way, shape, or form in the Twin Cities uh, see him as a a confidant and a and a friend who is always open to having a drink with you or you know sitting down with you, which I think is you know just kind of indicative of his spirit. Yeah, that's very cool. That's very cool that he's, yeah. that he's willing to maintain that connection and give back in that way, though. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Taking a look at the Three Squares inbox, this is where we empty out all the arcane trivia, and now you can deal with it. If you have something you would like to send to us, please do so. You can drop in a voice memo or send an email to Three Squares, the number Three Squares Mail at gmail.com. Kevin, back at you. Here we go one more time. My family is from Southeast Asia. We've always eaten avocados like a fruit in sweet milk drinks or desserts. However, when I came to the States, it's eaten like a vegetable in guacamole. When I was explaining this to a friend from Switzerland, she said the same thing is true for her, but with corn. She's always thought of corn as a fruit because it's sweet more than like a vegetable. So who's right? Corn, avocados, are they fruits? Are they vegetables? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your mind right now. There is no such thing as a vegetable. What? That's not true. That's not true. Vegetables don't technically, no, they don't exist, at least botanically. There is no such thing as a vegetable. A vegetable is made up. It is a concept. Everything that you pretty much think about as a, fru- as a, as a vegetable is either a fruit 
or it's a grain, like corn is a grain. It's not a vegetable. A vegetable is a, it's a construct. It's the savory fruits? Kind of, yeah. That's a a good way to think about it. I mean, okay, to give you an example of this is that back in the 1920s, uh, the tomato producers sued the United States government because they were being taxed as a as a fruit and fruits cost more to to ship via rail and they said well we're actually technically we're used not like a fruit botanically a fruit we're used like a vegetable so they won and they actually had to be repositioned as a, as a vegetable to be taxed you can look it up <laughs> so what i mean is is it's a construct and the reason i find this this question so interesting is not so much the vegetable or fruit part but just what part of um, how food in general, the categories that we invent as food producers and, and all that, how it changes the way people think about food, right? So like, what's the difference between a snack and a meal, right? Like that is a categorization. There is no such thing as a snack, really. Because I mean, you talk to consumers and they'll tell you, and Susan, you know this better than me, a lot of people are not eating breakfast anymore. They're eating a series of snacks and they're calling it breakfast. Right. Right. We call it the sneal. Sneal. Yes, exactly. So what I love about it is this idea of how we make up these categorizations, whether it's fruit or vegetable, whether it's snack or meal, and how we have to play with that as uh, food producers and, and people that think about food a lot. I just think that's fascinating. But next you're going to tell me the Jolly Green Giant isn't real. I'm sorry to kind of, I, we won't go there. It's too scarring for you, probably, Charlie. It is. It is. Very painful. Very painful. <laughs> hey, if you have questions or comments or simply want to know how Kevin's brain works and how he thinks of this stuff, you can write us at three squares mail at gmail.com. That's the number three squares mail at gmail.com. Three Squares, Dishing on the Food Industry, is created and hosted by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. Thanks to our producers, Dave Beesing and Jason Jackson at Sound That Brands. Special thanks to General Mills for their support. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and please give us a rating and review, especially if you like it. It helps to spread the word, so please tell your friends. We'll see you soon on Three Squares. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 